You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, we give you thanks for this day. Uh, we give you thanks for bringing us all here together to, uh, to take this time to um, uh, dwell in a certain period in the life of the church when um, a, uh, a very important revolutionary figure in um, um, hymnody um, did wonderful work that you had uh, set him out to do. So, uh, Lord, we ask you be with us as we take this time to, to, to study this together. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to give a little bit of background um, about the hymns of the church so that we can get a uh, have a, a larger context for Isaac Watts. Um, Isaac Watts being the, um, the great hymn writer, many of whose hymns we sing uh, regularly in our services here. Um, it's pretty well established uh, that Christians were singing hymns in their meetings within a generation of Pentecost. They sang psalms, the first Christians being uh, the Jewish converts, and the psalms were what they knew. However, it was not long that Christians began devising ways of singing about Christ's work and about their own Christian experience, their own response to it, as alluded to and approved in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. And also Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, in the uh, Revelation to John, we see poetic passages which uh, suggest that John may well have been quoting some of the poetry that Christians already knew. It is likely that these were not sung as congregational song the way we understand it today, given that the congregations had no book to sing from. Uh, they likely sang refrains um, in response to verses uh, from the Psalms. Uh, uh, they did most likely have songs at their meetings, some of which were uh, may have been solos, newly composed. For example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14.26, we see some evidence for this. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So uh, people would, uh, and, and some of these may have had uh, refrains in which the, the people could join. People would sing what they could remember. It is also likely that these were short in length. The earliest complete Christian hymn that has been preserved is the False Hilleron, which translates cheerful light, uh, is described uh, by St. Basil as being well known. Uh, and it is from this period, the troubled fourth century, uh, that we have the first uh, systematic Christian hymnody. Uh, Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, uh, who was uh, 
uh, considered, and I'm quoting here uh, from uh, Eric Routley, who's a, who's a, who, and I'll be quoting from him from time to time. He's a, an expert. Uh, he was an expert hymnologist from England who also spent some time living in this country. Uh, Eric Routley writes uh, that uh, Ambrose was the only man alive who was feared and respected by the fierce emperor uh, Theodosius under whom Christianity became not only tolerated, but the official and compulsory religion of the Roman Empire from 381 onwards. And it was during that period that the church was greatly divided over the doctrine of the Trinity. There were the, on the opposing side, there were the Arians who uh, gave their people songs to sing which would fortify those uh, convictions, convictions we would describe as Unitarian. And it was Ambrose who, who composed songs for Christian Orthodox people to sing in reply, uh, from which we get the tradition of the metrical doxology, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. Uh, it was good, Ambrose argued, that Christians should sing, but whatever else they sing about, they must sing about the Trinity. So that as the church, the church as it grew had become vulnerable to all kinds of misinterpretations of the faith and imitations of it. Um, so um, the question arises, who would preserve the tradition that would frame the faith of the people? So there was the thought that there must be professional high-grade Christians who were distinguished from the common herd. That's a term, um, Routley's term, by being literate and learned. Uh, hence, we have the development of the medieval Monastic tradition, particularly uh, with, uh, particularly under the the guidance of uh, Saint uh, Basil. So we have the great monastic tradition of the Middle Ages, and these preserved during the Dark Ages a tradition of culture and literacy, as well as Orthodox Christian teaching. Uh, while the worship of the ordinary lay Christians centered on the Mass and hymnody had no part, here it was in the daily round of the monastic tradition. A system of hymns were developed which were made part of the liturgies at the various times of the day, which we call uh, the office. Uh, and then we have a term, the office hymn, that means the hymn for the routine of the day. None of this was congregational. The, these were sung by the members of the monastery, the, the literate and the learned, and they were sung antiphonally to plain song. Uh, there were uh, also hymns that were not part of the liturgy itself that were uh, adopted as fitting adornments to the offices. For example, uh, the sequence. So, fast forward. We come to the, the Reformation. Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote 37 hymns, the bulk of which were intended for the liturgy of the Mass as translated into German with certain uh, theological changes. Uh, we have uh, the ordinary of the Mass. Those were the fixed parts of the Mass. So we have the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, uh, the Gloria, glory be to God on high, the Sanctus, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, and so forth. So we have um, we have those uh, we have uh, hymns that cover those parts. Uh, we have verse in a versified form. We have the reworking of some of the best known medieval Latin hymns translated into German. We have there are also hymns to illustrate the Catechism, the Lutheran Catechism, reinforcing the teaching of young minds. Then there are some hymns that fall outside the liturgy. There's a hymn called A New Song, which Luther wrote in 1523. And then we have Ein Feste Burg, known to us as a mighty fortress. Uh, and we have Vom Himmel Hoch, From Heaven Above to Earth I Come. So sm a small collection of hymns, canticles, and metrical psalms integrated with the liturgy or constantly repeated month to month. 
All of this gives rise to uh, the Lutheran tradition. Uh, then we have, uh, growing out of that, we have, uh, we have pietism, we have the Moravian or Bohemian brethren tradition, and so forth. Now, we, let's shift to um, another wing, uh, wing of the Refor- Reformation, uh, John Calvin. Uh, this is centered in Geneva. So there, there's some contrasts uh, between Luther and, and Calvin, and as, as Eric Routley uh, sets up these contrasts, he describes them this way. Uh, Luther was a genius at public relations, while Calvin was, a, was more of a private man. Luther was an artist with all the artists' impatience. Calvin was a scholar with all the scholars' impatience. Uh, he says, Luther fought his way out of the medieval Catholic Church. Calvin thought his way out of it. <laughs> Calvin's he writes, Calvin's Reformation was rigidly based on reason and his church order rigidly founded in discipline. Calvin reconstructed and reoriented worship, being not drawn to preserve as much of its antique and venerable beauty as Luther was. Congregational singing was insisted upon and, in fact, was the only kind of singing allowed. So no, none of this singing by professionals, monastic choirs, all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, singing was restricted to metrical psalms, paraphrased to fit into meter, uh, canticles from the Bible, uh, that is the poetry from the Bible, and the Lord's Prayer. Any words that were not biblical uh, were forbidden in worship. So out of this grew the Genevan Psalter, whose music edit- musical editor was Louis Bourgeois, Adapting and writing new tunes, adapting old tunes, writing new tunes, and reworking tunes from the old Strasbourg Psalter. Uh, singing was in unison, not in harmony. Singing was in unison. Instrumental music and accompaniment was not permitted. Versions of the Psalter in four and five parts ha- appeared, however, designed for use at home, which could include the use of instruments. Um, Calvin himself was rather suspicious of this and, and, and quarreled with bourgeois, but ultimately these psalters won out. Then we come to England, Puritanism in England. Um, English hymnody. It was Thomas Sternhold, who, who died around uh, 1549, who first conceived the idea of English metrical psalms. Sternhold was a Puritan who held the office of groom of the royal wardrobe to Henry the eighth successor, King Edward VI. And we've, 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 uh, here in this church, we have, we've, we know a little bit about King Edward VI through, um, his, his role, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the very important period in the English Reformation. He was 11, only 11 years old when he came to the throne. He lived only about six years, six more years. It was in this capacity, uh, that Sternhold, uh, as, as the, uh, having the office of groom of the royal wardrobe, uh, that he, uh, seems to have been a tutor and personal advisor to King Edward and uh, to have had oversight over the various court entertainments. Uh, now, most popular during, uh, the most popular musical form during this period were the ballads. It was from the ballads that the metrical form for psalm paraphrases, as Sternhold used, uh, that we have the, the meter, uh, uh, the meter that was used and um, Usually it was uh, what we call today common meter, where you have eight syllables followed by six syllables. So, the king sat in Dunfermline town drinking his blood red wine. You can actually sing that to any one of the <laughs> tunes that are uh, 
that, that we know uh, that are in that meter. Sternhold began the task of setting the psalms to such meter such that they could be sung to the ballad tunes. Uh, these ballad tunes, by the way, would be very similar to the tune we know as, uh, that's known as Forest Green. It's the one that goes like this. These uh, were completed. Uh, Okay, let me back up. Uh, Sternhold only completed 37 of them uh, by the time of his death. This was done in about a two-year period. And uh, the rest of the Psalter was later completed by John Hopkins. Uh, And the complete Psalter was officially called the Whole Book of Psalms. And book has an E on the end, and Psalms is spelled P-S-A-L-M-E-S. This appeared in 1562, uh, which is the same year as the completion of the Genevan Psalter. Uh, the, this collection is also known as Sternhold and Hopkins, or the Old Version. So the official use for these psalms were at the end of morning or evening prayer, treated as hymns, not substituted for the psalms of the day in the liturgy. Uh, all of this, of course, was interrupted by the reign of Queen Mary, a devout Roman Catholic who sought to reverse the English Reformation, burned people at the stake, etc. There were a number of people who, rather than face all the perils of Queen Mary, decided to leave the country, and a number of them uh, settled at Geneva, where they had in use the 1551 edition of the Genevan Psalter, and at once they saw the possibilities of metrical psalmody. They were content to follow Calvin's line, that the the public song in church should be confined to psalms and metrical canticles. They eventually devised a kind of music based on the Genevan uh, style that would suit this kind of metrical song. So, so here we have it. This, this is the situation that we have in the church where it is insistence that you need to only sing uh, what's in the Bible. Uh, the, the, so the, we have the, um, the um, English translation of the Bible in 1611, which we know as the, uh, the King James Version. And um, so now that you have this translation, uh, don't stray from it in any way, shape, or form. So no imagination. Don't, don't do anything. But that doesn't quite go with the Puritan mind, because the Puritan mind is, is, uh, is, is also asks questions. And finally, we have a man who raises his voice to ask some questions, and this is Isaac Watts, uh, the liberator of English hymnody. He's a Puritan, uh, a, a Congregationalist, intellectually alert, temperamentally cautious and reserved, very well-read, son, son of a Congregationalist elder. He was, like any good Puritan, always asking questions and arousing some amount of discomfort in doing so. He poses the following questions. If Christians sing in church, why not sing about what means most of them, their Savior Jesus Christ and what he has done? The Psalms take us a good long ways, but not quite that far. The second question that he, that he poses is, why, if we sing metrical Psalms, must they be such sorry doggerel? Is, is the King James Version and Meter the only possibility for public praise? So the result and answer to the first of these questions is found in the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This is the first hymn on uh, the handout. Uh, and now let me know, is there anybody who lacks a handout? Um, everybody have a handout? Good. Um, and, then the, and then the answer to the second question about, about the metrical psalms is, 
the hymn Jesus Shall Reign. We will, we will have a close look at both of these hymns. So on the one hand, Watts reasoned, since the scriptures say all we need to know about Christ, why not devise hymns based on what they say? On the other, since the Psalms themselves mean most to Christians when they teach, when they reach forwards towards the Christian dispensation, why not apply to Christ those royal adulations the psalmist was content to apply to David or Solomon or whoever it, it was? Uh, and, and the Watts uh, writes about this in his preface to the collection, Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament, uh, which was published in 1719, pointing out the incongruity of putting in the mouths of most Christians the thoughts that occurred to a poet who was a king and a Semitic king at that. Um, Watts wrote well over 100 Christian hymns between 1690 and 1707, and then by the 1709 edition of Hymns and Spiritual Songs, so there's a 1707 edition, that's the first edition, second edition is 1709, the number had grown to 360 in less than 20 years, uh, and this is before uh, Watts even uh, has uh, reached uh, the age of 35. So he started doing this really quite young. He began by having his Bible open before him and versifying New Testament passages and then even writing more imaginative pieces following from the thoughts aroused by these uh, biblical texts. Imagination was something that the older Puritans had shied away from, as uh, here Routley puts it, imagination could do dangerous things with undisciplined minds. But Watts held that with, with the hour-long sermons that they had, that people were disciplined enough to allow for more imagination as doctrine and scripture that they absorbed from those sermons would keep them safe. Of course, I should point out that so many of so many of the hymns are actually written by ministers and priests, with the idea that we want to be sure that the theology, the doctrine, is is sound and rooted in Scripture. Um, there's imagination found not only in Jesus shall reign, but in the hymn. Originally, our God, our help in ages past. We know it as O God, our help in ages past. That was John Wesley who made that change. Now let's go straightway to the hymns. The first hymn we have here in the handout is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. On the back side, we have the, we have the music and words. This is based on Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And we see... Uh, in this hymn, which this appears in Hymns and Spiritual Songs, uh, the first edition, 1707, we see um, uh, specific places in the text that point that, that really uh, point directly to the scripture. Look at the third and fourth lines of stanza one. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And he goes on to say, forbid it, Lord that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Skip over to the fourth stanza. This is one that is generally not found in our hymnals. You, you will find it in some of the English hymnals. And this relates particularly well to the second half of, of verse 14 from Galatians 6. His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. So the last two lines in particular that, that ties right in 
with the scripture. And then the last stanza continues the thought. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Now what the... what. What uh, Watts invites us to do here is to is to really think about the cross, think about Christ's suffering on the cross. Uh, I, I note um, you'll see a note here. Uh, the original, the second line of stanza one, the original is where the young prince of glory died. It was changed at some point in, in the second edition to on which the prince of glory died, uh, but we have it back in the original translation. Or, sorry, original version in um, in our, our hymnal. But look at uh, stanza three. Uh, he, he, he asks us to live for a moment in Christ's crucifixion. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And he continues that thought, his dying crimson like a robe spreads o'er his body on the tree. So he asks us to live, has, invites us to live in that. Why don't we take a, a few moments and sing the hymn. Next we come to the hymn 
Jesus shall reign. This is based upon Psalm 72, verses 8 through 19, published in Psalms of David in uh, 1719. So this this shows a lot of uh, a lot of create creative imagery in use here. Uh, stanza one of the hymn corresponds to verse eight of the psalm. So here's verse eight: uh, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then this becomes: Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Now what we have here is he's taking the psalms and he's taking the psalm and amplifying it by using Christological language, uh, making it much more obvious uh, where there are, there may be subtle messianic references or references to royalty and making them about Jesus. Then 9 and 10 and 11 of, of the psalm. May desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of all the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall before him, all nations serve him. So this becomes stanza two of the hymn. Behold the islands with their kings and Europe her best tribute brings. From north to south the princes meet to pay their homage at his feet. And say so some of these stanzas here are not stanzas that we have in the hymnal, um, as you can see. Uh, it, and then um, he doesn't really uh, get as much into the next verses of the uh, Psalm 12, 13, and 14. So we'll skip to, we'll skip to verse 15. Long may he live, and may gold of Sheba be given to him. This becomes stanza three. There, Persia. Glorious to behold, there India shines in eastern gold, and barbarous nations at his word submit and bow and own their Lord. Uh, and then we have may prayer be, be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. That's continuation of verse 15. And we have in the fourth stanza of the hymn, to him shall endless prayer be made and praises throng to crown his head. His name, like sweet perfume, shall rise with every morning sacrifice. Then it continues, and uh, the psalm continues with verse 16. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. So this becomes then uh, stanza five. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song and infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name. Then we have verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So then we have uh, the next stanza of the hymn. Blessings abound where'er he reigns. The prisoner leaps to lose his chains. The weary find eternal rest, and all the sons of want are blessed. Then we have verse 18 of the psalm. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Which, uh, here we have the the penultimate stanza, not uh, included in our hymnals. Where he displays his healing power, death and the curse are known no more. 
In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Then finally, verse 19, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And we have the final stanza of the hymn. Let every creature rise and bring peculiar honors to our king. Angels descend with songs again. And earth repeat the loud amen. We're running a little short on time, so I'm going to go on and talk about the next hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, or Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, as it was originally written. This is particularly interesting in, in, its, in its use of, of, uh, of imagery. Um, it, mainly, uh, um, it mainly deals with the first six verses, but also touches on the others of the psalm. So first of all, we note, uh, as he originally wrote it, our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. No, they, the pro, they possess a pronoun, our. So we have, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Or as the King James would have it, Lord, thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another. So um, it's actually, um, Eric Routley makes the point, it's, it's a bit regrettable in a way that, that John Wesley decided to change it to, oh God, our help, in ages past in the 1780 Methodist hymnal. Um, so then we have verse 2 of the, of the psalm. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. So we, this, this brings us stanza two of the hymn. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Then we have um, um, also, well, and actually the, the third stanza sort of continues the thought. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. So those two stanzas cover the, the second verse of the psalm. Then we have the third verse of the psalm. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. So this goes, uh, this deals with uh, stanza four. Uh, this is dealt with in stanza four uh, of the hymn. Thy word commands our flesh to dust. Return, ye sons of men. All nations rose from the earth at first and turned to earth again. So that this, we don't, this is not a stanza that we would know very well. Then the next verse of the psalm, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Uh, we skip down to stanza six of the hymn. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. So he brings the imagery of the rising sun, which also reminds us of the resurrection, does it, does it not? Um, then we have the next verse, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. So um, that uh, we're dealing with that in stanza seven. Time like an ever rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Then we have, uh, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. So that becomes stanza eight. Again, one that we do not have in our hymnals. 
Like the flowery fields, the nations stand, pleased with the morning light. The flowers beneath the mower's hand lie withering ere tis night. Then he sort of recaps everything in the final stanza. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be thou our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. Turn the page to the next hymn. We'll talk about this uh, briefly, and I think this will be what we uh, will wrap it up here with this. This is sort of, this is probably the next best known of uh, Watts' hymns on the atonement. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Um, It was uh, uh, in book two of Hymns and Spiritual Songs of 1707, Composed on divine subjects. And and the title is Godly Sorrow Arising from the Sufferings of Christ. Note some things here in uh, stanza one. In the original, it's much stronger language than what we have in in, in our hymnals today. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Now, that's a little disturbing. But that kind of imagery of, of speaking of speaking of man, uh, mankind as being like worms, that we see that a lot in Watts's Watts's um, hymnody in his poetry, um, and we see it in the Psalms too. There's a stanza that that he brackets uh, as uh, to be possibly omitted, uh, which which as uh, which perhaps he he's thinking perhaps this might be best to be meditated upon. Thy body slain, sweet Jesus thine, and bathed in its own blood, while all exposed to wrath divine, the glorious sufferer stood. Then the third stanza originally reads, uh, "Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree." Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Now, there's some changes uh, that, that we see in hymnals. If you look on the back side, you'll see a 1955 Presbyterian hymnal has it, uh, and it's the second stanza in this hymn. Was it for sins that I had done? And instead of he groaned upon the tree, he suffered on the tree. But I have to say that he groaned upon the tree kind of puts us even more in the moment, kind of, kind of uh, invites us again to really... Uh, live in that moment um, and really think about it. Um, then the fourth stanza, uh, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when God, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Now, this raises an interesting question. There's some um, hymnals that have altered this to read when Christ, the mighty maker, died uh, because they want to avoid any sort of impression that God has died or God is dead, that there was the God is dead movement that was a big thing in the 1950s and 60s. But but what Watts is really trying to, is conveying to us here is that Christ, uh, Jesus, who died on the cross, was God in the flesh. That's a theological point that he's making in the way he writes this. Then we have, thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Really powerful hymn. Uh, we, we should 
sing it sometime here for services. I have some other pages in the uh, handout that that uh, provide you some additional hymns. You can you can take some take these home to, to to look at more. We have the heavens declare thy glory, Lord, which is based on Psalm 19. We we see uh, the title for Christ, Son of Righteousness, in the opening line of stanza. Five, uh, and we see the very same language in many of the hymns of Charles Wesley, such as in Christ whose glory fills the skies, Son of Righteousness arise, or also in Hark the Herald Angels Sing that we sing at Christmas. Next page we have Now to the Lord a Noble Song, which takes much of its inspiration also from Psalm 19. Then we have... Um, in the next page, we have a hymn that's uh, in, inspired by 2 Timothy uh, 1, verse 12. Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to own my Lord is, is, is the hymn. Uh, and then on the back page is yet a third hymn on the atonement. One that's not very well known, but, but a really wonderful hymn. Uh, it's in our hymnal. Um, surprisingly not altered except one of the stanzas and I don't remember which stanza was omitted but one of the stanzas is not included Um, I'm going to check that right now 434 Um, I think it is I think it is the uh, it's the um, Here in here I beheld his inmost heart. The stanza four is not included, but all the others are. So uh, that's another wonderful text. So um, uh, why, this is just the barest tip of the iceberg of Watts's hymns. But but we can we can really thank uh, give thanks for um, uh, the life and work of, of of Isaac Watts and for his wonderful contributions to uh, English hymnody uh, that uh, inspired. Uh, many uh, generations of hymn writers uh, going on. So uh, with that, uh, let us pray. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for the, the life and work of Isaac Watts and for, uh, for, his, uh, for the work that you uh, did through his life to, uh, to, to bring um, uh, so many of these hymns uh, together to, 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 to give even more, uh, bring even more vividness to um, proclaiming the gospel to help us to dwell even more deeply in uh, in the scriptures and in the story of, of what uh, Christ uh, has done for us through his his life, death, and resurrection. And we pray all of these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.